0: After having written a great deal about suffering, Peter seems to digress in verses, four, uh, verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4. This is what we studied last week. Only return to the matter of suffering in verses 12 through 19, what we will look at today. As I mentioned last Sunday, the passage we looked at last week, I almost saw it as very similar to the break we take in our singing between the next to the last and the last verse. And John plays and today with Anna Ruth and and hopefully it gives us a chance to reflect on what we have sung or I find myself more often looking to the last verse, what I will be singing in the last verse. In these verses, Peter recalls some of the material that he has already given them with some new twist because I think a good way to review is to add something in as you're reviewing. And what we found is that Peter deals with community solidarity, that is, partnership, and family. And he does so before he returns to the matter of suffering. Just by way of review, I want to deal with three aspects of what we looked at last week. First of all, Peter starts out in verse number seven with the statement, the end of all things is near, which seems startling and has raised a lot of questions. The word that Peter uses is the word in Greek, telos. This is not the first time that telos appears in 1 Peter. Interestingly enough, however, in the NIV, it is the first time it's translated as end, which I think um, doesn't help us out a lot. Um, To understand what telos means, we should look at how he uses it elsewhere in this book. In chapter 1, verse uh, 9, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the telos of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then in verse number 13, four verses later, therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully, that is, tell us, to the end on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So tell us is the end of a goal-oriented process. It is the ultimate object or aim. Certainly this is what Peter intends in chapter 1, verse 9, when he speaks of the goal of your faith. And we hear it, When he speaks of hoping fully or to the end, the goal of God's grace. But what does it mean here in chapter 4, verse number 7? The end of all things is near. I think he means the goal of God's saving purpose is at hand. We hear this, by the way, in Jesus when he preaches and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. In some sense, we need to recognize as Christians, as Peter writes us that the end had already come. We've seen this in Galatians, and now we see it here in 1 Peter, the already but not yet. So in chapter 1, verse 20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. So he's revealed in these last days. But in another sense, he is yet, or he has been revealed, if you look in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. There is a time in which Christ will be revealed at the end. So he has been revealed, but he will be revealed. The already, but not yet. Last week, we looked at what uh, Paul had to say about this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, when he says, the time is short. As I mentioned last week, what he is saying is not that they only have a few days or months or years remaining, but rather that a radical new perspective regarding time in the future is required. Again, I mentioned last week that there is something that can compress or change our perspective of the amount of time available. When you have a beginning and an ending, suddenly time takes on a different dimension versus no beginning and no end. Or when you know that something is going to happen in the future. For children, it is a birthday, their next birthday. And so that, everything is seen in that context. Well, Christ has come, and he will come. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And there is an event in the future, his return, that gives perspective to everything we do in this life. And so with these things, our perspective should be different. This life is not eternal. This world is not eternal. It, doesn't, it will not simply go on and on and on and on. As Christians, we believe in a linear view of time, but not an endless line. There is a beginning and there is an ending. And when you have that, it changes your perspective so that you could say that time is short or it is shortened. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that the coming of Jesus into the world is so important. Yes, I know that he came and he revealed the Father. He came and he died to pay for our sins. But there's something else. The fact that he came into the world marks a beginning point of the end of things. And we see this throughout the New Testament. And it throws people because it seems to be speaking only of the second coming, when in fact the reference point is the first coming. In Hebrews chapter one, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Oh, is it almost the end of time? No. The coming of Jesus marks the beginning of the end of time. It is this marker and his coming is important in that regard. And then as I read earlier from chapter one, verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. In 1 John 2, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that many Antichrists have come, this is how we know it is the last hour. There are those who who would mock the apostles and say these poor men are so confused, they think that the second coming is going to happen right then, and that was almost 20 centuries ago. Not at all. Rather, they understood that with the coming of Jesus into the world, things have changed. And one day he will return, and we live in between those two events. And therefore, our perspective of time is radically different than someone who has no beginning point, no beginning marker, or no ending marker as well. So, when Peter says that the end is near... He isn't saying we've only got a few days left. He's saying our perspective is now different, which is very important if you are suffering. Because as I've said before, oftentimes when we suffer, we see no end in sight. We can't imagine anything else. I also said last week that I find it really intriguing. If you look at verse number seven, there's there's another part to verse number seven that most people conveniently ignore. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Everyone is really bothered about the first part, about the end being near, but eh, conveniently forget the second part. You should note that in the other place where Peter speaks of telos, he also speaks of being self-controlled. Chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully, the telos there, on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we see the double focus of the mind, prepare your mind, and be self-controlled. Be clear-minded, be self-controlled. What kind of prayers is Peter speaking of? From the context, it is prayer in connection with the church. Our prayers contribute to the building of personal relationship, our relationship with Christ, but also with one another. Peter suggests two forms of self-discipline. First of all, to be clear-minded. To be clear-minded, I think, means to have a sense of proportion, that you keep your head despite the dangers or the fears of a given time. Panic is one of the things that we might do in the midst of difficulties. And uh, Peter says, listen, be clear-minded. When suffering comes, when difficulties come, they change, they tend to warp your perspective, and you need to think clearly. Clearly. Fear and worry, particularly that which is stirred up by persecution, can easily lead us to make bad decisions and can even, I think, cause us to pray badly. By God's grace, even when we pray badly, God knows what needs to be done. But Peter says we need to be clear-minded and we need to be self control self control There needs to be sobriety. There needs to be restraint. Interestingly enough, the word indicates taking things seriously. Well, one would think that, yes, we would take suffering seriously. Um, Yeah, but sometimes perhaps we don't take it as seriously as we should. So we are to be clear-minded and we are to be self-disciplined. We are, in fact, to be self-controlled. And pain and suffering can throw us into a tizzy, and Peter says no. Because, listen, there is an end in sight. Christ will return. There has been a beginning point, and things will be fulfilled. The telos will be accomplished, and therefore we should not fear. Prayer is to be done with a clear perception of reality. It's not to say we always pray that way. If we did, Peter wouldn't have to write this. He writes it precisely because we don't always pray as we should. I said this two weeks ago. Suffering does not change our responsibilities, and this includes how we pray. I've mentioned that when one suffers, it's hard to think of anything else. It's hard to think of anyone else. It's hard to imagine life without pain or suffering. To pray as we should requires self-discipline. It requires to be clear-minded and self-controlled. And we should not forget what Peter wrote in chapter 3, verse number 12. For the eye of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. This is a quote, by the way, from Psalm 34. Well, hopefully having oriented getting people back on track with verse number 7, Peter now addresses the actions of his readers toward one another. And the ESV is better here because in each case it has to one another. We are to love one another. We are to show hospitality to one another. And we are to serve one another. Rather than review all of this, I would simply point out that the orientation, the focus of a Christian is never oneself, but is to be toward others. And I would say that this begins with prayer and then it continues in love, hospitality, and service. The third aspect from last week that I would say by way of review is that Peter ends this section with a doxology, a word of praise, which has far greater implications than we might imagine. Um, I I said this last week, and I don't mean to be cute, but it might strike us as sort of a nice way to end this passage, in, in, in part because it's so familiar so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. But stop and think of what Peter is saying. Since God gives us what we need to love one another, to show hospitality to one another, to serve one another, he gives us the gifts, and we looked at this last week, it only stands to reason that he should get the credit, he should be praised for any good thing that comes out of our lives. And that that praise should be through Jesus Christ who has made our lives possible. And the result is to him be the glory and power forever and ever. And who is this Jesus to whom the glory and the power should be? The one who suffered. The righteous sufferer. The one who is the pattern that we should follow. He is the one whose attitude we are to embrace to arm ourselves with. To people who are suffering and to people who may suffer unjustly, this is more than a mere doxology. It points to the telos of the story. Yes, Jesus did suffer, but then he was vindicated and to him be glory and power. And to those who are suffering, this is not the end of the story. One day we will reign with Christ. I said at the end of the sermon last week, simply put, we are in this together, in our suffering, in our rejoicing, we are to love one another, we are to show hospitality to one another, we are to help those in need, and we are to serve one another. But suffering may cloud our vision, it may be almost sort of a form of a cataract that develops over our eyesight because the focus becomes me and my pain and my suffering, I also mentioned, though, that the suffering of others may throw us off. For myself, if I suffer, I have a long list of things in my mind for which I can say, yes, Damon, (laughs) that this suffering may well, in fact, be because of these things you have done. But when I see other people suffer, then I begin to question God's goodness. Then I begin to say, I don't see anything in their lives that is worthy of them suffering. We should remember that the story has not reached its end. It has not reached its telos, and God knows what he is doing. Today, in verse number 12, we return to the matter of suffering. We've had that little interlude, if you wish, and now we return to suffering. Let's face it, suffering is not easy to endure, To carry or to put up with. People have different thresholds of pain. Some people can endure a lot of pain and not flinch at all. The rest of us, I include myself, have a very low tolerance for pain and suffering. But everyone has a point in their life at which pain becomes painful. There are different kinds of suffering. There's physical suffering, there's emotional, there's mental. There are different types of suffering that we may experience. And again, some people can tolerate some types better than others. But I think it is safe to say that when we suffer and we cannot see any point to the suffering, it seems pointless, the question comes, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering Why am I suffering more than other people? It doesn't seem right. Peter in our passage today calls for a right attitude, a different attitude in the matter of suffering. Look, if you would, beginning at verse number 12. Dear friends, the ESV and others have beloved. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal, any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In this passage, the series of suffering is recognized and taken seriously, as well as moderated by kinship and affection. Note that Peter begins with dear friends or beloved. And then in verse number 18, we have us, first person plural. He includes himself. He isn't simply talking to a bunch of people over there, but these are his dear friends, and he includes himself as one who may in fact suffer distress. He writes to give his readers consolation and encouragement. And he does so within the tradition of Scripture. This isn't something Peter's made up on his own. And I would say, and I I want to say this carefully, this isn't the first time the Holy Spirit has spoken about suffering and somehow is directing Peter, you know, we haven't said anything about suffering up to this point in the Bible, and maybe you need to write something about it. No, Peter stands firmly in the scriptural tradition. Consider that in verse number 14, Peter borrows the language from Isaiah chapter 11. He says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. What we find in Isaiah chapter 11, the first two verses, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch that will bear fruit. So it's obviously talking about the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I think everyone would agree Isaiah 11 is talking about the coming Messiah. By the way, in chapter 1, I don't know if you remember, Peter spoke about the fact that the spirit of Christ spoke of his coming sufferings. This is in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, searched intently and with the greatest care to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That is, as Isaiah writes this down, by the spirit of Christ directing him, he is looking ahead to the sufferings of Christ as well as the glories that Christ will have. However, Peter does something very different here. He takes this Isaiah 11 passage and does not refer to Christ, but to Christ's people, the church, the community of faith. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Isaiah writes. Peter writes, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, plural. On the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised that Peter does this. He connects the suffering Messiah with Christian suffering. Jesus suffered, you will suffer. Walk in his steps. But interestingly enough, Isaiah 11 has something else. This is toward the end in verse number 12. He will raise up a banner for the Gentiles and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Even Isaiah, though I think he does not know it, sees a community in the future, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, they will be the messianic community, the people of the Messiah. This means that the suffering that the people, Peter's writing to, that they're going through, is neither a sign of God's displeasure, God isn't mad at them, that's why they're suffering, nor is it a sign of God's absence, that God is busy somewhere else or that he cannot do anything to alleviate the suffering. Their suffering is a sign that the Spirit of God is on them. It's quite remarkable. Suffering is a sign that God's Spirit is on his people. Those who suffer because they are God's people, Christ's people, that they are the church, bear the recognition that comes from God. He sustains them by the presence of his Spirit. So rather than suffering being a sign of God's absence, it is a sign of God's presence by the Spirit. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's just one reference. In verse number 17, there is a hint of Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 6. That is a passage about judgment on idolaters. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women and children, but do not touch any who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary... So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. God says, judgment is coming on these people who worship idols. Begin at the temple. Begin the executions there. And here Peter speaks of judgment beginning with the house of God. In verse number 18, there is a clear reference, and most translations have a footnote at the bottom, from uh, Proverbs 11.31. In verse number 19, Peter speaks of doing good which reminds us, or should remind us, of his quote from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So I think we can safely say that Peter looks to Scripture for evidence, for support of what he is saying in these, in these verses. He isn't simply saying, well, what do I think about suffering? He looks to scripture and what does scripture say? So because he does this, we can safely affirm that little of what he writes here is unique. We shouldn't think, oh, this is the the epistle about suffering. No, because almost everything that Peter says has been said somewhere else. Let me just give you a brief list. Those who follow Christ may indeed suffer. We read in Acts chapter 14. They, that is Paul and Barnabas, preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. This is how they encouraged them. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. In 1 Thessalonians, we sent Timothy who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. Our destiny as God's people is in fact to suffer. The Spirit is present with those who go through persecution. We read in Luke 12, Jesus says, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And why is that? Because in suffering, it is a sign of the Spirit of God being on you, being with you. The fact that we should suffer, the necessity of suffering for bearing or having the name of Christ in Acts chapter 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What about the notion of suffering and being blessed, being connected, the blessedness of suffering from the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What about not being ashamed? Uh, Peter addresses us that when we suffer, we should not be ashamed. Paul wrote to Timothy in his last letter So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Then the notion of being connected with Christ in his suffering is also being connected with him in his glory. Romans 8, now if we are children and we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. So what Peter writes here is found throughout scripture. It is not new, it is not unique to him. Then why is he writing this letter? What is he saying and why is he saying it? I would suggest four things for you to consider. First of all, suffering should not be unexpected. Verse 12, do not be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you. There's actually a play on words, and because we're reading in English and not in Greek, we miss it. In verse number four, which we saw several weeks ago, um, they think it's strange, that it's the pagans think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Uh, surprise is the word zinizo, and the word strange is zenos. So the pagans think it strange, or they are surprised, that Christians no longer participate in what they do. Christians should not be surprised. They should not think it strange when they suffer or suffer a painful trial. The two strange things, by the way, are connected. Since Christians no longer participate with pagans in the things that they do, they now participate with Christ in his suffering. You have a choice. Will you participate in the wickedness of pagans or will you, in fact, join in? Will you participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ? The second thing I would have you consider is that to participate in the sufferings of Christ is to place oneself in the pattern of Christ career, if I could use that word. Verse 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We've seen this over and over and over in this book. The pattern of the righteous sufferer seen supremely in Jesus includes in part moving from suffering to glory. Now, we don't know in our lives when that glory will happen. We don't know how long the suffering will be. But in fact, that is only part of the story. It is only part of the pattern. The pattern that ends the story is glory. The third thing I'd have you consider is the present trial may have its its origins in persecution, but it is not outside God's purpose. Just a side note here, the NIV has the painful trial, but the King James, as well as the English Standard Version, have the fiery trial, which I think is to be preferred because if you go back to chapter 1, it's all connected, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is the NIV, verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. There's the fiery trial. May be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we should not take only a negative or primarily a negative view of suffering as though it has no purpose. If somebody hates me because I'm a Christian and they are opposing me, they're persecuting me, I need to understand that there's something else going on. It isn't just a negative, I'm suffering because of persecution. There is, in fact, a positive aspect that God is doing his work in my life. He is using something that they intend as meanness and cruelty to, in fact, be something that will bring goodness in my life. God is able to use opposition so that our faith may be proved genuine. Which leads us to the fourth thing I would have you consider, and that is the nature of judgment. If you look at verses 17 and 18, these, particularly verse 17 really throws people, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The suffering of the righteous signals the coming of judgment in at least two ways. First of all, it purges us, who are God's people of sin, It's the fiery trial. It's to get rid of those things that don't belong in our lives. But secondly, it also is a sifting process that some, when the fire comes, they bail. And we come to see, sadly, that they were never God's people in the first place. But judgment is going to happen. It is inescapable for all. But this, I think, is where we get into trouble. We tend to think as Christians that only the wicked will be judged because we think of judgment as condemnation. But what does it mean to judge? Doesn't it mean to discern, to evaluate, to distinguish? I mean, if you're a judge in a contest, you're not there to condemn the contestants that lose. You're, in fact, distinguishing that this person is better than this person and perhaps singing, dancing, whatever. Somehow, in the church, when we hear the word judgment, we always think in terms of condemnation. The Bible uses the word condemnation when it means condemnation. But judgment isn't always negative. It is to say, these are God's people, and these are not God's people. It has, in fact, a positive as well as a negative component. It is not necessarily to condemn, but it is, in fact, to distinguish, to discern who are God's people, who really is a child of God, and who is not. This means that suffering is serious business, but it's also wonderful. It has a purpose in our lives. Well, in light of what Peter writes, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live our lives? How should we then live? Let me suggest some things. First of all, if we take verses 12 and 13 together, together, our surprise at suffering should give way to joy. We should not be surprised. We should, in fact, rejoice. And why should I rejoice? Am I to be masochistic as I'm going through difficulties and say, oh, yes, I love pain, I love to suffer? Not at all. What we say is, this is only a part of the story. And I know I'm part of the story. I'm in the suffering part of the story. But there's something that comes afterwards. David went through this in Psalm 34. Jesus went through this in his life. I'm going through this. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. But it should, in fact, give way to joy. If we suffer with him, we will share in his glory. Likewise, if you look at verse number 16, those who suffer now will not suffer later. They will not be condemned. So, our surprise, our dismay should give way to joy because we should think clearly. We should be clear-minded and self-controlled. The second thing is the type of suffering that Peter is talking about has to do, it's tied to doing what God wants us to do in this world. As a believer in a disbelieving world, we've talked about this before, not necessarily unbelieving, but disbelieving, those who refuse to obey. If I do what I should, I may in fact suffer. There's a word that Peter uses in verse number 16 um, that we're so familiar with that we may fail to appreciate his use of it. If you look at verse number 16, do you find that word? It's the word Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. I think that shocks most people. Only three times do we find the word Christian. The other two places are in the book of Acts. And I would argue that the other two places it is used, it is used in a pejorative sense. It's not a nice word. It's a slanderous word to call someone a Christian. Um, we think of Acts 11, that the, the believers, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We think, Oh that's great, come to be known as Christians. But if you look at the second time it is used, it is when Paul is speaking to Agrippa. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And again, I think we take it in a very positive sense. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon, at least in Greek, to extend a leader's name by adding "ianos," so Christianos. And that's how Christians came to be known as Christians. In Acts, certainly in the second uh, use, but I would say in the first as well, it was not a term of endearment. It was a slanderous term. It was something that people used to put down those who follow Jesus. So it is fascinating that Peter chooses to take this slanderous word, this word that people use against God's people, and he uses it. But look at the context. In verse number 13, it, is, it says the sufferings of Christ. In verse 14, because of the name of Christ. If you suffer as a Christian, now it's being fleshed out. Yes, I am a disciple of Christ. And the world may say about me, ha, it's a Christian. It's one of those guys. Peter says, that's okay. That's Okay. And if we suffer, it is because we live in a disbelieving world and we have taken the name of Christ. When Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, he says, okay, I don't mean when you break the, if you break the law. And he's very clear here, a murderer, a thief, or any other kind of criminal, or even a meddler. He's not simply talking of things illegal, but even things immoral. If we suffer, it is because we are doing the right thing and not because we are doing things we should not be doing. How should I live? The third thing he says, I should commit myself to the faithful creator and continue to do good. Two things that we have seen earlier in this letter. In chapter 2, verse 23, I'm sorry. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did this. We should do this. When people look at us and say, you're a Christian, and they don't mean it in a nice way, that's fine. I should entrust myself to the creator. And then the notion of doing good, continue to do good. This has come up time and time again in First Peter um, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Then from Psalm 34, He must turn from evil and do good. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Okay. Okay. I get it. I'm supposed to do good. But what does that mean? What does it mean to do good? Simply put, it means to put into action the good news of the gospel. This includes how we act toward each other as believers. We are to love each other. We are to serve each other. We are to help each other and show hospitality. In our passage next Sunday, the Lord willing, Peter will develop this further. But in our passage today, Peter is speaking of Christian behavior in the wider world. When we leave this place, as we walk through the world, how am I supposed to live? What should I do? I think Peter is calling us to courageous resistance as well as a way of life pattern after Jesus, who, when he suffered, did not threaten. It is the natural instinct to strike back. He did not. Instead, he entrusted himself to God. Now, if we're not careful, we will look at this and we'll think of it, well, in my heart, I'm trusting God. And certainly, there is that aspect of it. But I think it's much more than that. It means that in my actions... What I do, there is a sign that I am trusting God. And I do this by doing good, by living out the gospel, by loving my neighbor as myself. This is what it means to do good, to live out one's faith. You'll notice in verse number 19, the only time in this letter God is referred to as the Creator. That's pretty striking. What's even more striking is the word that Peter uses. It's the only, only place we find it in the New Testament. Um, we, we see God is creator throughout the New Testament. This is the only time he uses this particular word. Um, if you're like me, I'm intrigued. I'm curious what's going on here. Why use this word that he uses? By the way, the word in Greek is K-T-I-S-T-E-S. K-T-I-S-T-E-S. Why does Peter use this word? It was a title given to Caesar. It means someone who founds a town, someone who extends an empire. And when persecution comes, when suffering comes, it may seem to the brothers and sisters, our sisters and brothers back in the first century, that Caesar is God. He is the creator. He's the founder of all things. And Peter says, no, entrust yourself to the true creator. Entrust yourself, commit yourself to God. The initiative, the protection, the judgment, these all belong to God, not to Caesar. Jesus told us we should not fear those who can kill the body. They are not the creator. God alone is the creator, and we should commit ourselves to him. He knows what's best. I'm reminded of what Joseph told his brothers after the father died, after Jacob died. They were really concerned that Joseph might try to get revenge on them. And he said, no, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The suffering that we may go through in our life may be meant for evil by others. But God means it for good. We should commit ourselves to him and trust ourselves. He is the creator. Not not all these other people, not the U.S. government not the United Nations, You know, take whatever powerful entity, not Facebook even. We should entrust ourselves to God. He is the creator. And he knows exactly what he's doing in our lives. All things being equal, we'd, we'd rather that it didn't include suffering. But it did in the life of Jesus. Why would we be any different? It did in the life of his people in the Old Testament. Why should we be any different? The reality is, I think we have not suffered much, but the day may come when we do. When it comes, we should not be surprised. We should not think something strange is happening to us. This is the call of God's people. Let's pray together. Father, as much as you have given to us, each of us faces difficulties. Walking through this world as your people, seeking to be obedient and live out the truth of the gospel, often brings with it harsh consequences. Maybe not even harsh, but things that we'd rather not face. I thank you for what Peter writes. As I said, it's not unique. But he does call us not to be shocked, not to be surprised. But he calls us to participate in the sufferings of Jesus and to entrust ourselves to you. Suffering is a sign of the presence of your spirit. Who would have thought that? May your spirit guide and direct us as we think through these words in the days to come. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name.